welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, that was, uh, that was very good. Thank you very much, worship team. Good morning to those who are watching us online. Uh, we'd love to have you come out one time in person, but it's always great the fact that you can join us online and be a part of uh, what God's doing here at New Life uh, all over the world, which is kind of cool. Uh, t- this morning, this message is really part two of three. So it's a continuation of what we were talking about last week, and it's going to continue on uh, into next week. And it's, it's important that we take the time to address this. I mean, this is the entire chapter three of Paul's letter here that he's devoted to this one topic. And I think it's, it's a critical topic. It's, it's an issue that the church has battled with in some form, in some way, really since its inception. And it's understanding the law, understanding uh, standards and expectation, and particularly God's law and the role that it plays in our life today. Because it's all kinds of misconceptions. O- out there, I've heard teachings where the idea is that somehow you need to balance law with grace, that the, the two need to work hand in hand, and, and that if you have too much law, that's obviously legalism, but too much grace can lead to license. And so therefore, you need to balance the two. But that's a misunderstanding of grace. It's a misunderstanding of even what the law does and what the law is offering to us. I think it's interesting that we have the story of the Mount of Transfiguration in the Gospels. That was the, the time where, where Jesus took the, the inner three disciples. He took James, John, and Peter up onto this, this mountaintop. And, and while they were there, all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up. Moses being the lawgiver and Elijah being recognized as the greatest of all the prophets. And so basically, you've got the law and the prophets there with Jesus. And as you would expect, what was, what was Peter, James, and John's response to that? The thought was, we're never leaving. This is, this is it. We're good. You know, Jesus, permit us to build three houses for you. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you. We'll put a pool in. We'll uh, have an extra outdoor, you know, barbecue, patio. It'll be great. It'll be wonderful. Eldon will paint for us. Perfect. Let's do it. Right? So that was their plan. But they were missing the point. And then, then the, this voice, it was the booming voice of God speaking to these three. He says, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Now, first off, I found that interesting that that father needed to say that or felt he needed to say that for Jesus. Maybe Jesus needed encouragement from time to time because he did live as a man. And so here's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But then he went on to say, listen to him. And so it's interesting that the Moses, the law, he had Elijah, the prophets, and, and God was saying not listen to all of them, Listen to Jesus. He's the one. And so what's happened is we've been released from the law because the law isn't going to be the answer for us. The, the, the comeback to that, but isn't the law good? Isn't the law holy? Isn't the law righteous? And the answer is yes to all of that. The law is from God. The law is, there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is how the flesh uses the law and what the law does. 
And so that's why we have a verse like 1 Corinthians 1, 8, or 1 Timothy 1, 8, 9, where it talks about how the law is not made for righteous people. It's not made for the church. It's not made for believers, but rather it's made for the unbeliever because it's to drive them to Jesus. But if we go back to the law thinking, well, what harm is there? What the law actually does is it produces death in us. That was what Paul is trying to get across in Romans chapter 7. If you ever want to kind of study this out more, Romans chapter 7 and the entire book of Galatians really is, is a commentary on chapter 7 of Romans, but on this issue of law and grace. But Romans 7 in particular, Paul's addressing the believer's relationship, or specifically that the lack thereof of any relationship that the believer has with the law. And he talks about a time in his own life where he thought that if he just kept the law, in particular this one commandment, thou shalt not covet, then everything would be okay. He'd be a better Christian. But then he goes on to discover in Romans 7, verses 10 and 11, this commandment, one of the big 10, which I thought was going to result in life to me, proved to result in death for me. For sin, the flesh, this thing that's in me but not me, my old master, it's waging war in my soul. It took opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. See, every time we go back to the law, we give flesh power. We saw that last week, that the flesh is always looking to put you under that law. That expectation of, are you doing enough? <clears throat> are you a good enough mom? Are you a good enough husband? Are you a good enough father? Are you a good enough wife or child or Christian or, or coworker or, or whatever it is that you're trying to measure up to? All of those standards are put in place there so that the flesh can now have power and dominion over you. And so what we want to discover really is, is the freedom that God has for us. And that's really the, the, the core of this morning's message. When I was praying this week, Father, what do you want your people to know? He just kept saying freedom. So I, I almost, this was almost the week where I showed up in William Wallace gear. It was almost. <laughs> but I figured the kilt would have been too much. So, oh, yeah, You're, you say that now. <laughs> so let's, let's now continue Paul's train of thought here, right? So he's been comparing the old covenant, the law of earning, of achieving, versus this new covenant system of grace. And the new covenant's not the old covenant plus a little bit extra stuff. It's replaced the old covenant. The old covenant is now obsolete, as he says in, in Hebrews. It's now a new covenant of grace, of the spirit of receiving. So beginning in verse 12 to the end of the chapter, verse 18, here's what Paul writes. He says, therefore... Having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the, at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, wherever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is a spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's freedom. But with we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. Let's pray. Father, what a great passage. One proclaiming hope, proclaiming freedom. And each and every one of us, Father, we're, we're not living as free as we are. We're not experiencing the hope that you've given us. We are to a degree, 
but there's more for us to experience, more that you've given to us, more than that you've purchased on that cross. And so I pray this morning, Jesus, that, that we would hear your words through me, that your spirit would be the teacher and that you would open our eyes to more freedom that's just right there waiting for us, available for us, and that we would take hold of it and live in the freedom as you, that you've designed us for. In your name we pray, amen. Well, our passage here this morning begins with the word therefore, which means it's a conclusion. He's, he's, he's concluding what he's been saying on before, but he says, therefore, having such a hope. Let's, let's start with understanding this word hope a bit more. In, in, in the Greek, it's, it's elpis, and it's, it's similar to our English word for hope. Hope is this idea of something that we're joyfully looking forward to, something that we have this great, wonderful expectation of. But in the context of God's word, wherever he's using this word hope, it's, it's something that's guaranteed. It, it's, not a, it's not a wishy-washy kind of hope, but one that is a sense of confidence. For example, in our world here, I, I might hope that the Leafs will get out of the first round of the playoffs sometime. I can hope that, but we all know it's not very likely, unfortunately. Right? So it, it may happen, it may not happen, but we can hope for it. But here, talking about hope in the Bible, it isn't in question. It's, just, it's a guaranteed of something that's to come, but not yet has come. And that's why I find it interesting in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about these three essential characteristics of the Christian experience. And what are those three characteristics? They're what? Faith, hope, and love. And, you know, it's interesting, as I thought about that, I, I think about a lot how we talk about faith, we talk a lot about love, but I don't think I talk about f- hope to the same degree as, I, as the other two. And yet they're both important. They're, all three of them are important. And I think it's one of those things that hope, we don't realize how, how important hope is until it's taken away, until it's gone and it's no longer in our life. Because when you lose hope, that's when people give up. You know, people who are considering suicide, they consider suicide because they believe the situation is hopeless. They, they believe that they're really what is a temporary problem, they believe will never change, and therefore they look for that permanent solution of suicide. Because in their mind, it is a permanent problem. There's no hope that it's going to get better. There's no hope that things are going to improve. And so when you give up hope, death looks like a pretty good alternative. In fact, they, they've even reported that in, in, in times of war, POWs, prisoners of war, how many of them would die soon after a holiday. And it's because in their thinking, they'll be like, we'll be home by Thanksgiving. And then Thanksgiving would come and go, and they're still not home. We'll, we'll be home when, when we, after Christmas. That, that's when we'll be home. We'll be home by New Year's. We'll be home in time for spring. And when consistently those deadlines weren't met, artificial in nature, but nonetheless in their mind it was their deadline. When that didn't happen, they would give up hope and they would find they would just pass away. It's not that they were taking their lives at that point, but they gave up hope inside and their body died as a result. And so hope is important. And so for this world, the hope that it can offer you and I is essentially YOLO, right? You only live once. It's, it's what this world has to offer. And so it's up to you now to make the most of your time on this planet. 
have the most adventures, the most good experience, the, the most pleasure, the most joy, gain the most power, the most money, the most, most of anything, right? It's just basically whatever you can accomplish while you live these 80-so years of life here, do your best. But that's an empty experience. Because what ends up happening is you end up walking over other people trying to satisfy yourself. But as believers, as Christians, we know we have something far greater, far greater than what this world has to offer. In fact, it's really, it's really what probably drove us or led us to go to Jesus in the first place. What, what was it that led us to accept Christ in the first place was that there was a hope of something greater, hope of forgiveness, hope of life, hope of redemption. But it's important that we understand our hope in God is, is not some artificial hope. For example, some people have a hope in Jesus that is the equivalent where Jesus is essentially a genie in a bottle, a genie in a bottle that will grant your wishes. So you're up against a difficult situation, or you have a dream, you have a desire, and you, you pray to God that that's going to now come to fruition, whatever it be. For some, it was to, to be married. And for those who are married, it might be just be single. Um, Whatever it is that people have these desires and these dreams, and then, then they don't come to pass. And they become disappointed at that point with God. And really what's being exposed here at this moment is, is your hope's not really in God. Your hope is in this world. You just think that God is the means to the end, that God's the means to providing the outcome that you desire in that. And that you know, you've done your part, and now God owes you to answer his part by answering the prayers. And that's a false hope. Or, or maybe, maybe the hope is just in this, still in this world, but again, God will, if I follow God's ways, then he will bless me as a result of that. So there's not specific prayers that I'm having, but a general sense. And so I've been doing my part. I've been making sure that I've been reading my Bible and I've been showing up on church and I've been, been giving and serving and I've been witnessing and I've done all the right things and yet my life is still hard and it's still difficult. And it's because there's a sense that we expect more. And I, and I think in part, that's, that's our world, that's our culture influencing our understanding of the gospel. Think about it this way. Since the end of World War II, which was you know, roughly 75 plus years ago, we have lived in the greatest prosperity that this world has ever seen. I mean, think about it. It used to be, they said, that King Louis XIV lived the most indulgent life. Now, he's you know, a few hundred years back, King Louis XIV, and he lived at a time where he would have 400 meals prepared for him every day. And then he would choose. I, I figured you would just go steak and pasta every day, right? But he got to choose of all 400 meals. And then whatever he didn't choose, the other nobles of his court, they got seconds and thirds and so forth down the line. And the opulence that, that he had, or entertainment at a demand. Well, think about our lives today. What do you want to eat tonight? You have more than 400 choices, different restaurants and, and different ethnic uh, styles. And you can go to the grocery store. You can even order it from your couch, and they'll deliver it to you, to your home. You don't have to prepare the meals. And in terms of entertainment, 
There's endless entertainment with streaming and YouTube and music and so forth, whether it be live or on your TV or even on your phone. There's all kinds of opportunities for that. We have never lived in a time of prosperity or a time of luxury that we live in today. Now, don't, don't mistake me. That doesn't mean we don't have troubles because the troubles are guaranteed. The troubles are a result of the curse, right? Genesis talked about the toil and the pain and the conflict that we're going to experience. And yet, I think somehow we believe that we shouldn't, that with all our technology, with all of our expertise, with all of our great understanding of science, we should have overcome all that. We should have engineered a solution to get rid of the curse. And yet we don't. And then we get angry at God because we think, God, we've done our part. We shouldn't experience those difficulties. And I think in part because suddenly the message of our hope was, come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. That was never explicitly taught to me, but growing up, that's what I believed. And so when I faced these trials, when I faced these difficulties, I felt like I must be doing something wrong that I must have failed God in some way. And he's withdrawing his blessings. And now I'm experiencing the curses of my poor choices. But do you realize that kind of thinking is actually old covenant thinking? You read Deuteronomy 28. It's a great chapter, 63 verses. First 14 verses are all about the, the blessings God promises you if you do all that the law commands all the time. So if you live a perfect life, you get 14 verses of blessings. I mean, they're great. In there, you'd be the head, not the tail. You're, you're, you always have food coming in. You will be able to lend. You'll never have to borrow. Your kids will rise up and call you blessed. Imagine that. I mean, everything will be wonderful and great. 14 verses of blessings. Followed by, however, almost 50 verses of curses. That's a bad deal, by the way. But he says, but if you fail, at any point, you get 50 verses of curses. You'll be the tail, not the head. You'll borrow, not lend. Your children will rebel. You'll always be in want. And the idea of the old covenant was, you are blessed if you do well, and you're cursed if you're not. And the idea then is that God is going to give you blessings or withhold blessings based on what you're doing. But that's not the new covenant. So we have a verse like Ephesians 1.3 that says that you and I have been given every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's the good news of that verse. Well, let's do the bad news first. Bad news is there are no more spiritual blessings to come. The good news is you don't need any more. That you already have everything that heaven has to offer because what were you given? You were given Jesus. And he contains everything we need for life and godliness. And so he's not withholding his blessings. He's not withholding his hand in any way. He's already given it all of it to us already. Here's, here's another false hope we have, though. The other false hope I hear from Christians is this idea that, that our hope is in heaven. Our hope is that this world is hard. But one day we're going to leave it, and we're going to go to heaven, and there'll be no more tears, and there'll be no more suffering, and no more sin, and, and it's paradise. I mean, think about it. The asphalt there is gold. Everything up, right? I mean, that's just, it's incredible there. And here's the problem. Here's why I say it's a false hope. Because that part's true, but if your hope is in heaven, you're missing out on Jesus today. 
And here's what happens. When your hope is heaven, this world feels extra harsh. This world feels extra difficult. Because you're thinking, why am I here? Why do I have to go through all this? What's the point of it all? Why not, Lord, get saved, beam me up, Scotty, and I'm done? And so we're very tempted because the, the pain and the suffering seems pointless and purposeless. And yet our hope is not just in heaven one day. Our hope is something greater. Our hope is Jesus Christ himself. That yes, you and I will experience when we leave this planet, but we can also experience here today. And I think in the context of, of this passage in particular is in Jesus, Paul talks about this liberty or this freedom that we have. That what Jesus has accomplished on the cross has set us free from, but also freed to. So I, let's take a look at a couple of verses to kind of hammer this point home. In Galatians 5.1, Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Think about that. It wasn't for service. It wasn't for duty. It wasn't so that you would now worship and honor him. He set you free so that you would be free. And don't let anyone return you back to that yoke of slavery. Don't let anyone put you back under that law. He set you free from it. Or in John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus speaking here, he says to the Jews, if you continue in, or if you, another translation says, if you hold to my word or my teachings, if you hold on to what I say, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. The truth of what Jesus has done on that cross, finished work has already set us free from certain things, but also freed to certain things. So let's, let's think about what that means, what that looks like in our life. And I thought here would be a good time to open source it, meaning here's an opportunity for you guys to share with me what you've learned, maybe here at New Life or in other areas, other parts of your, of your journey. What have you learned and discovered that Jesus has set you free from, but also set you free to? Go ahead, just shout them out. What are some things? You've been set free from being lazy or set free to be lazy. Which one? <laughs> You've been set free from being lazy, freeing you to do household chores. Abby says amen. All right. What else? What else have you been free, set free from or free, set free to? Set free from a false identity, right? From that, the old self who was crucified so you could be set free to being a new person, a new identity. From our past hurts, from our past hurts right? We've been set free. That, we, that doesn't define us anymore. So we've been free to being healed. Striving. Striving, right? No more this sense of struggling, of trying to earn something, of, of trying to, to make it one day. What else? Um, free from uh, listening to country music. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my boy. My boy. They say if you, if you teach your children well, they will one day rise, rise up and call you blessed. But you know what? You're even free to, to love it. You're free, I, you know, you've been set free. What else? Set free from control, both under being controlled by others 
but also being set free from controlling others. No, I did not pay him to say that. No, no. He's just, he's paying attention. <laughs> Who else? Who else has got something? Fear of judgment. Right? Free of myself. From shame. Let me come back to the judgment one, because that one's really important. I, I, I've been set free from judgment from you. I love, I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in, in chapter 3, where he says, it is a small thing to be judged by you or any human institution. It's a small thing. It doesn't matter to me. In fact, he goes on to say, I don't even judge myself. Because it doesn't mean I'm innocent. doesn't mean I'm perfect. doesn't mean I don't make mistakes. But God's my judge. And I know how he's going to judge me. And that's why John says that, there's, that we don't have to be fearful of judgment day. Because of God's love, that judgment day isn't going to be harsh. A judgment day is going to be a celebration. So we're set free from judgment. Beautiful. What else? Bitterness. Set free from bitterness. Don't have to carry that anymore. Because that, that poison, that kills us. What else? Free to be me. Free to be me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, right? Just to be me. And, and that means to just be fun, free to be goofy, free to not take yourself too seriously, but also free to struggle, free to be sad, free to not have it all together, free to cry, free to be a mess. Just be who you are. What else? Free from the bondage of sin. Sin is no longer our master. Sin doesn't control us anymore. We've been set free from, from sin. What else? Set free from unforgiveness or bitterness. I would listen to your wife more. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, what else? Set free to protect? Or perfection, yeah. Set free from the need to be perfect, right? The measuring up all those expectations. Which the other side is you're free to fail. You're free to make mistakes. You're free not to have it all together. What else? Fear itself. Set free from fear. Why? Because you are loved. You are so loved by God himself. Can I one more in? Free from weight. Free from weight? What do you mean by that one? Oh, your weight. Free from body image issues. Are you? Never mind. I won't go there. <laughs> right? Free from struggling with how you look. We're free from the flesh. Absolutely. The, the flesh, the sin, dwelling sin does not control us in any way anymore. Here's some things I've got. I've got free from self-doubt. Free from pleasing people. Free from trying to be someone else, someone I'm not. Free from rebellion. Free from the law and the law system. Free from this world. But also free now to love others. I'm free to rest in Jesus. I'm free to love and accept myself. I'm free to relax around people. I'm free to try new things. I'm free to be human to make mistakes. I'm free to, to be transparent and risk vulnerability and trust other people. And I love this one. I'm free to walk with God. 
I love the, the imagery that we have in Genesis about Enoch. And there's not much we know about the story of Enoch, but it was just Enoch, it says Enoch walked with God, and then he was not. And I heard one joke saying that, you know, one day Enoch and God went on a long walk, and then it was getting late, and God said to Enoch, you know, he says, my home's closer than yours. You want to come home with me? And then he was gone. But that beautiful picture there of Enoch walking with God, probably like how God walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. We're free to do that. We're free to experience that now. That's incredible. That's what we've been given. That's the liberty and the freedom that is yours today. Not when, not if, not as long as, but is yours, given to you as a birthright, given to you because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so he goes on in, in chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, therefore, having such a hope, having this, this hope that is ours, we use great boldness in our speech. We have confidence in when we talk to other people. You see, I think what Paul is saying is, is because of what God's done in him, he has a boldness now in sharing the gospel with others, a boldness in sharing the faith. See, I think a big reason why we struggle with evangelism, why we struggle to share faith with our, our loved ones and our friends is we don't know how good we've got it. In fact, we, we're not sure it's that good, to be honest with you. It's great to be forgiven, but boy, I sure feel like a failure because I'm not measuring up. Why would I want to now put my loved ones under that same bondage? Come to Jesus and you could be miserable like me. Doesn't really look good on a tract. And it's because, again, we don't know how good the gospel is. And I think the more we understand it, the more we begin to appreciate, the more we begin to, to embrace how much you are loved and how free you are, it's hard to contain it. It's hard to keep it in. And why would you? Wouldn't you want your loved ones to know the good news? Kind of like that young man who first falls in love with that young woman, and he acts like a fool, and he does not care who knows, and he'll do all kinds of stupid things because he loves this young woman. That's, that's the kind of dynamic that happens when you begin to get a hold of how much you are loved by Jesus. And you can't help but loving him back because we love because he first loved us. And then it's hard to contain that love. And so it allows us to be bold, as Paul says. But then going on in verse 13 now, Paul's going to continue this contrast. It's a contrast that he was doing in the previous verses about Moses and the Spirit and contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant here and co contrasting law and grace, that one is a ministry of death and condemnation, the other is this ministry of the Spirit of life, of righteousness and acceptance. And he tells a story now from Exodus 34 where Moses would go in and he meet, met with God on the mountain. And when he came down, his face was glowing. It was just glowing in the sense of he, he was standing in the presence of God's glory. And so it was just reflecting off on others. But over time, it was fading. And so what he would do is he would put a veil over his face to hide the fading until the next time he would meet with God. Then he'd go back into the Holy of Holies. He'd meet with God and kind of recharge the, the glow. And then he would go out, but then it would start to fade again. So he'd have to always put the veil on. So the glow would go up and down, up and down. And I thought, what a great picture that is of the Old Covenant. Think about it. The Old Covenant, you needed forgiveness. So how did you get forgiveness in the Old Covenant? 
You go to the temple, you'd offer your sacrifice, right? And every year, there'd be a massive atonement, the Day of Atonement. But throughout the year, if you did certain sins, you would go and offer your sacrifice. The kind of sacrifice would depend on the kind of sin you had, you had done. And you'd go offer your sacrifice. The, the priest would receive it, and he would prepare it, and he would, he would then offer it to God, and then you were forgiven. And then you would leave there, and guess what would happen probably within you know, an hour or two? You would sin again, and you would need more forgiveness. And so forgiveness was constant. It's why in the, in the temple, the furniture had a, a lampstand, had a table, had a, a, an altar, but it didn't have a chair because the work of the priest was never done. It was constant over and over and over again. And so you'd go back and get recharged, and you have to go back, get recharged, much like Moses was doing with the glory. Because as good and wonderful as that glory was, it wasn't eternal. It wasn't permanent. It was fading. Well, here's the contrast now. The glory you and I have, the glory that's been given to us in the new covenant is eternal. It never fades. So we don't have to hide anything. Instead, we can reveal the glory that God's given to us. We don't have to hide it anymore. It's finished that it's an eternal glory that is constant because, again, of what Jesus has done. And, and so he's, he's offering it to us now. And so in verse 16, the offer there is it's available to anyone. All that is required is that they turn to Jesus. And wherever they, whenever they turn, that veil is lifted. Now, he's talking specifically about Israel. And in the sense of Israel experienced this partial hardening because of the rejection of, the, of, of Jesus, because of the rejection of the Savior that was promised to them, there was a partial hardening, it says, of, of Israel, which is why many Jews today have rejected Jesus. I, I talked to one friend of mine who's a, he's, he considers himself a Messianic Jew, which just means that he's Jewish by birth, but he's, he's a Christian like you and I. And he told me growing up, his parents said to him, Whatever you do, don't break your mama's heart and become a Christian. Like, you know, dr sell drugs, kill people, listen to country music, whatever you want, just whatever you don't break my heart by becoming a Christian. Because there was this animosity, this bitterness towards Jesus. Despite the fact that Jesus is Jewish, all the you know, original disciples were Jewish, it was started off as a Jewish thing, there was this partial hardening because they rejected it. And Romans, Romans 9 and 10 talks about that, specifically Romans 10. And that this partial hardening is there, but it will be lifted over time. And that, I believe, if you're looking for uh, prophetic events for the end of the age, look for when Israel starts to come in large numbers to faith in Jesus. And this same friend of mine talking to him says, what's interesting is the generation coming up they don't know anything about this Jesus character. And they're starting now to be open to it. And it seems to be that this partial hardening is beginning to lift. But what's available to any one of them, as well as to, to us before we knew Jesus, all that was required of us was to turn to him. And that veil be lifted, and you would see the glory. You would see what's available to us. But I wanted to take some time on this idea here, because there are some who, who have, are teaching right now that this idea of turning to Jesus is just all a big, a big mind trick. It's basically that this, this universalism that's being taught of thinking that this is grace, 
that God's grace is that he saved everyone, they just don't know it. And that all they need to do is turn in their mind and that they're saved, but they're not really saved because they've always been saved. And the end product of that is there's no hell and everyone's going to go be with Jesus. And that's just it. And that's good news. And, And I'll be honest, I wish that was true. I really do. I don't wish anyone goes to hell. And neither does, does God. But the reality is, scriptures speak about hell. Scriptures speak about that place. Be- scripture speaks about a separation that's not just in our mind, but in actual relationship. Here's a couple verses. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so he does not hear. He can rescue us. He can save all of us. But there still is a separation there that's waiting for us to turn to him. John 3, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey, and the, con- the comparison here is, is the first part of the verse uses believe. The second part uses obey. The idea that obedience is belief and belief is obedience means that unbelief is disobedience and disobedience is unbelief. So we could see it this way, that those who believe have eternal life, but those who don't believe, those who are disobedient will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on them because they remain separate. And the argument here is, well, that was before the cross. After Jesus died on the cross, the whole world, all of humanity, every one of us was reconciled to God. We just don't know it. Well, Ephesians 2 and verse 12 says, remember that you were at times separate from Christ, he writes, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He was talking to people who had come to faith, but at one point didn't have that hope. Or in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 to 9, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey, again, who those who not believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord from the glory of his power. An eternal destruction, that separation from God. I don't love talking about hell because it's so despairing. There's no hope in that message. It's why we don't want people to go down that road. We instead want them to to come to Jesus. And and that's God's desire too. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Or in 2 Peter 3 and 9, the Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but to all to come to repentance. If you've wondered why, Jesus, have you not come yet? Don't you see how messed up this world is? Come, Lord Jesus, come. He's not slow to fulfill that promise. He's just trying to rescue as many people, save as many people as possible. And the question is, will they turn to him? That's all that's awaiting for them. We used this illustration many years ago, back when we were in the school, but we've added some people, so I want to share it again about this picture of salvation. I, I want you to imagine the Titanic, right? The Titanic, the unsinkable ship, 
right? This perfect ship at the time, and, and it's sailing across the Atlantic, and it hits the iceberg and eventually splits in two, and then everyone ends up in the water. Well, I want you to think about the Titanic is sort of like Adam, right? Every passenger in the ship is like every person of all humanity in Adam. And when Adam made that fateful choice, when he disobeyed and he ate from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, he didn't just plunge himself into sin. He plunged all of humanity into sin with him. As we've seen in Romans 5, it talks about how those who are in Adam participated in Adam's sin. So when Adam disobeyed, we disobeyed with him. When he sinned, we sinned. When he was condemned, we were condemned. When he was made sinners, we were made sinners. And when he died, we died with him in that garden. So much like the, the passengers on the ship, they bear no responsibility in the ship hitting the iceberg. They're still in the water. They're still now freezing in, in the freezing Atlantic Ocean. In the same way, because of Adam's sin, every one of us are plunged into this death and condemnation. Is it fair? No, but it's our reality. That's why we need rescuing. Well, now I want you to imagine another ship comes along, and this ship is Jesus. And he comes up to every single person in the water. And he says to them, you know, if you, you grab my hand, or just raise your hand up, and I'll grab it, I will pull you onto my boat. I will pull you into myself, and you'll be rescued. We got blankets. We got food. We got hot chocolate. It's nice up here. Just grab my hand. And for some, we did it. And for some, all we could do was, was this, barely lift. There we go. So God rescues us up from that moment. And again, it was just a simple raise your hand. But then there's others that Jesus comes to them and, and he says, grab my hand or just lift your hand up. And the response to him is, it's not fair. It's not fair that I'm in the water here. And the answer is, you're right. It's not fair. But the reality is you're there. Grab my hand. And in that moment, they're now choosing to stay in the water or not. In the same way, anyone who chooses to reject the gospel is therefore choosing hell. God doesn't send anyone to hell. He just follows through on what they desire. Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to struggle. And that's why it's simple. And, if, and maybe you're listening to this message, and, and you're, you're thinking, maybe I'm in the water. I've never actually accepted Jesus. My, my hope has just been in this world, and I just I show up to church because that's what I've been told to do. That's what I was raised to do. Or, or maybe you're here because your parents brought you. Well, I want to have this moment then to, to encourage us that what awaits us is this beautiful gift of salvation. Romans. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God
16, now the Lord is a spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's liberty. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to, we're going to sing one more worship song this morning that is this anthem on freedom. The celebration of what freedom has given, what Jesus has given to us, and all those things that we've listed earlier this morning, but what we're freed from and what we're freed to, and there's many more things. I want you to be thinking about the, this as you sing this anthem and as we, we thank our God who's done all this for us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we celebrate you and we celebrate the freedom you've given to us and all that you've done. Thank you, Jesus, that, that our hope is in you and not in this world. Our hope is, is present right now because of what you've given to us. And now we get to be ourselves. We get to walk with you. We get to trust you. We get to experience life as you intended it, even in this sin-cursed world. May you encourage us to risk trusting you that that freedom is true. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.